0: Hello, and welcome to the Agile Embedded Podcast. I'm Jeff Gable. And I'm Luca Injani. And today we are joined by a special guest, uh, Max Kolesnikov. He is an embedded software uh, and controls engineering consultant. Uh, He's the founder and CEO of his consulting company, MKS Technology. And he is here to talk to us about model-based software development. Finally. Welcome, Max. Thank you. Happy to be here. Fantastic. So uh, give the listeners uh, a brief uh, bit of your background, who you are and what you do.
1: Sure. Um, yes, my, my, my degree is in uh, electrical and computer engineering. I did some um, work uh, on uh, robotics and control systems um, while in grad school. And, uh, and then I transitioned to a professional career in um, control systems and control algorithms. That was my primary focus early on. Kind of primarily in um, automotive and industrial applications. Then I dived more and more into implementation aspects of uh, control algorithms and kind of uh, lower level embedded software development, and all the way down to you know uh, device drivers and um, low level software and uh, microcontroller peripherals um, and um, so on. I worked for um, automotive. And automotive-like companies, mostly of various sizes, ranging from small startups to big uh, Fortune 500 companies like um, Harley Davidson and Polaris and uh, other OEMs and uh, suppliers. And I held um, um, roles like uh, controls engineer, software engineer, software architect, uh, you know, embedded software team lead. And now, like uh, Jeff mentioned, I run um, MKS Technology, which is embedded software and controls uh, and engineering consulting practice, where I um, work on different types types of projects, ranging from kind of embedded software implementation to control algorithm design um, to project more on the Know, DevOps side of things uh, like tool chain design and development and tool chain deployment. And um, that's where, you know, I I use some of the uh, model-based uh, design tools, but certainly not limited by those tools. Some of my projects have, uh, you know, absolutely no model-based design tools. Um, the, it, it all, you know, depends on uh, what makes sense. And also um, uh, some of my work is born there. the kind of higher level technical strategy side of things and stuff like that. Yeah. So, so uh, happy to be here.
0: That's great. It's it's funny. Your career path and mine have followed very, very similar arcs. I was a mechanical engineering major and uh, specialized in controls and was a controls expert for 10 years before very deliberately moving into lower level embedded software. And and so i uh, It's funny, the reason we... So we've had listeners ask us for quite a while now to do an episode on model-based software development. And so I did a stint in automotive working for a small automotive company. uh, And we used uh, MathWorks uh, Simulink, you know, graphical programming language, and and used their real-time code generation to compile that down to embedded code. And that's what we wrote our control software in. Uh, But those were... This was back in like 2008 to 2011, and you know just getting subversion installed there was like a big deal. <laughs> so I you know and there was no there were no diff tools. There was no there was a lot of that, you know, copy it over to a folder, open them up in separate windows, scan them manually. Um certainly no continuous integration, no build pipelines. Um you know all the release was done on, you know, a developer's laptop kind of thing. Uh so all none of the techniques that we now know and love and, and evangelize were really certainly in, in practice in my little company back then. And so I haven't felt qualified to talk about model-based software development here on this podcast because I don't know how it's done the correct way. So was, I was so excited to come across uh, and meet you and say, ooh, <laughs> here's someone who actually has modern expertise in this area. So maybe explain for the audience, uh, Some some people may know, some people may not, what is model-based software development.
1: Yes. Um, so in a nutshell, model-based software development is a practice of leveraging virtual models um, in the software development process. And really, um, you know, when you think about it, um, the main point here is using the the models as um, prime artifacts for um, uh, for everything else, basically. So you use the models for, you know, you create the model first and then you use it for, um, some, um, you know, prototyping purposes, uh, to prove out some, some idea or some concept, um, use it in, in, simulation, uh, you know, maybe with other parts of the system. Um, then, um, that, uh, that model, you know, after doing some more work on it, you know, may become a more, um, more complete model where um, you know you can um, use it to generate code from um, instead of manually writing code um, or or parts parts of your code. Um, then um, that model becomes a, a an artifact you use for um, testing your algorithm, um, doing more rigorous testing. Uh, you know, looking at coverage metrics and and uh, and so on. Then this model can also be used for um, you know as a as a specification of your algorithm, or um, used to generate a specification or some sort of documentation for it. So that that entire way of using models, I think um, that's what uh, that's what's called model-based software development.
0: And to get a little more concrete, so so the word model is still a little vague. The way I had thought about it is, it's basically you, you're using a graphical programming language that some some concepts, specifically coming to my mind, feedback control systems and state machines. Both of those are extremely, um, uh, it's much more intuitive and concise to represent those visually rather than with text. Um, And so using a, essentially a a visual programming language lends itself very well, especially to those two particular types of algorithms. Um, Would you agree with that and, and maybe expand on that?
1: yes yes absolutely um so uh the first thing you said is totally correct um the uh, um you know when when we say model um we we specifically mean using a graphical modeling language because you know you can also create mathematical models with equations and without using any graphics but but in this context it is about the visual representation of, of your algorithm um and um and I, I would agree uh, with your second point uh, as well. Um, there are, and maybe let's generalize it. Um, there are uh, types of um, um, algorithms or types of software that uh, that um, um, naturally lead you to you know to implementation with uh, model-based tools, and that's um, that includes, like you said, state machines, but also um, anything with um, kind of more. Uh, complex um, um, calculations, let's say, you know, feedback control systems, uh, where there is complicated logic um, that is easier to um, implement and uh, easier to analyze when it's presented in visual form. Um, and then maybe on the flip side of that, um, you know, if you talk about um, which, you uh, Types of um, algorithms or what type of so, type of software is uh, maybe less so suited to to model-based development tools. And in my opinion, it's it's something where there is very little logic, but there is a lot of bit manipulations. You know, like very low-level um, peripheral configurations. Let's say um, you, you can you know you, you can probably. Uh, use model-based development tools to do uh, some of that too, but the the benefits there um, are are not great. Uh, so, um, in it's actually you know where whereas when you use it with um, you know state machines, let's say the it reduces visual complexity, it makes the concept easier to understand. But when you use it to do bit manipulation, it does quite the opposite sometimes. So, uh, <laughs> but I, uh,
2: I, I need to ask though. Um, Because, like, if I've been uh, creating state machines, have I been doing model-based software development? And if I've been expressing my state machines in C++ code, have I been doing it
1: wrong? I I wouldn't say it's wrong. Um, I would say it's it's easier to produce... uh, higher quality code with uh, fewer bugs if you uh, use model based design tools and that that, that uh, f- for for state machines uh, especially for complicated state machines when you have you know states with nested state machines and uh, many you know a few different layers of state machines and um, you you can all you know y- you can do it in C or C++ um, and uh, and maybe if you uh, you know, you're very skilled at this, uh, you can uh, produce code that's, uh, um, you know, will be uh, as, uh, as good as the code automatically generated from, from your tool. Uh, but on average, um, in, in my experience, uh, it's it's easier to, to use the tool uh, for, for an average developer and to produce high quality code.
0: And and I will say there's uh so we've had Miro Samik on in the past. Um, uh, he uh, is the founder of uh, Quantum Leaps, I think is his company, and they produce this uh, state modeling tool called QP or um, QM, and his real-time framework is called QP, whatever. Recently, you know, I, my one of the recent projects that I was working on has my own kind of hand-rolled state machine framework, not really, like I'm implementing state, state machines in in Embedded C, Um, and it is hard to make sure that I have everything correct. Like, and I don't really have proper entry and exit conditions. I have to remember to call them. It's a mess. And I, I, I like after a recent experience with that, where, especially if someone else takes over the code base, it's over. Like it's, it's just very hard for them to maintain something that's not kind of expressed in a proper state machine framework. And then the next level is doing that visually. Uh, and after a recent experience, I, I swear that next time I do a, a project with heavy involvement with state machines, which is most projects. I'm going to use mirror tools because uh, like it was astonishing the amount of time we spent hunting through these lines of text. When, if it's visual in front of you, like even people who are non-programmers who just have domain knowledge, they can look at it and understand and say, yeah, that Nope. Oh, you've got a mistake here. It actually behaves differently. And they can zero in on the problem when it's represented when a state machine specifically, when it's represented visually.
1: Yeah, um, and it's interesting you mentioned this, uh, because, you know, you mentioned non-programmers. I think that's, that's another, another advantage of using model-based, um, uh, software development, uh, tools and methods, um, is, um, it's improved communication between various, uh, functions, various engineering functions, let's say. Um, so, um, you know, it's easier to understand, um, uh, a control algorithm or a state machine, uh, when represented in this visual form, uh, when you, a software engineer, you know, want to communicate it, uh, or, you know, something about it, um, to other engineers, you know, maybe mechanical engineers or electrical engineers. So, uh, I, I, think that's another huge benefit there. You know, these two, um, benefits are, in my opinion, are, are, are the, uh, the greatest, you know, and you get the best bang for your buck there. Um, um, communication gets greatly improved because very, you know, very few non-software engineers can actually, you know, uh, dive into your code and, uh, figure out, uh, what exactly is implemented there. Um, but, um, um, um with with models, with uh, visual representation of models, it's it's way easier, uh, uh, and um, I think that's huge.
0: I have questions on detailed tools, but I feel like I'm dominating the the conversation here, and I know Luca has questions. <laughs> so, what do you think, Luca? Do you want to get some in before I, I nerd out here? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. So, I'm. I I kind of picked up when you were talking about including non-programmers in the loop, and I
0: I, uh, I knew you exactly. would. That's what that's why I gave you the chance to to get in.
2: Exactly, and and the, because of course this is something that um, I feel very strongly about in terms of shortening feedback loops and and getting to a to an agile way of working. So. I wonder what that actually looks like in practice. Would you like sit next to your domain expert and, and draw state machines together? Would you nah, paint me a picture of how that works?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, so, you know, from my experience uh, working um, automotive you can put together a very productive workflow where you sit with your, you know, let's say you, you design a software for controlling a um, let's say active suspension system. So you would, um, you know you have a big team working on this you have software engineers you have um, you know electrical engineers you have uh, uh, suspension engineers who you know understand the, the vehicle ride and handling, characteristics very well in, in those cases it's helpful to um sit down together to to look at the you know let's say what's currently implemented uh uh look at the states and they're expressed uh in the domain la- um, language you know there, maybe your shocks uh, are you know um um so, you know, you're softening the shocks here, or you're fir- firming the shocks in this case, and uh, you have different events, different vehicle events that you want to detect. Um, and based on those events, you want to um, uh, do something different to um, <laughs> To the suspension, um, you can actually map this out in, in state machines, uh, in um, some form of diagram, and then um, uh, carry this out into uh, you know model based design language, and and then you know work in that uh, uh, environment to to analyze, to review um, these um, things together, to um, make adjustments, and um, it it really uh, improves collaboration, I think, between the domain experts and, uh, you know, implementation experts, uh, and soft, like software engineers.
0: Yeah. I can think of, you know, what's the first thing you do, say, say you didn't have model-based software tools, uh, as I, I think relatively few of the audience do. What's the first thing you do when you want to collaborate with any of your, you know, counterparts on the engineering team or domain experts you know anyone in the business you sit down in front of a whiteboard and start making block diagrams and and talking about you know how what the algorithm is like but representing it visually on a whiteboard so that's that's kind of the default way of communicating that way
1: yeah yeah uh, and it's um uh, it lends itself very very well to um yeah using model-based design tools Um uh because it's natural
0: what specific tools do you use uh most often
1: so most often it's um simulink and state flow from mathworks i think they are very widely used in the industry automotive especially you know there are some competing tools that are used as well but um but yeah th- th- those ones i personally use most often
0: yeah that's that's what i used when i was in the industry for three or four years back in the day and then so uh now that we have this really good introduction to what model-based software development is, the re- one of the reasons we were so excited to have you on is to talk about applying more modern DevOps um, practices to that. So maybe you can kind of give us a breakdown of of the state of that and how you you know how you set up your uh, your workflows, um, your you know continuous integration pipeline, any testing, you know auto- automated testing, any of that. Uh, kind of how you set that up, and then we can dive into some details and and how that then you know affects the overall development process
1: yeah, I think conceptually uh, um you know the way it's set up it's um very similar to um, how you would set it up um, for non model model based development, so you would also have um, you know um, version control tools where you um, uh, control uh, you know your source code base uh and uh, you know you can use the same tools uh like git and you know svn or whatever um and um um it, it, there was an issue you know maybe a few years ago with um not being able to do model differencing as well uh for for some some, some of the tools are like, you know, Simulink models, for instance, um, uh, certainly not as well as, you know, with the text-based tools. But right now, uh, it's uh, pretty much not an issue. Um, there are differencing tools available um, that, you know, some third-party tools or tools that are built into Simulink that um, um, allow you to look at two different models and it would highlight a difference, um, you know, differences between the models for you. It would allow you to merge either way. Um, yeah, whatever whatever you're used to doing with text, you can do with models. Um, some other tools are, you know, other than Simulink are even easier in this regard because they have a better, you know, underlying Kind of text-based format where um, h- how these models are described and, and it helps with differencing. But um, but yeah, I, I would say that's that's not an issue anymore. Then um, looking at other other aspects of um, the DevOps uh, workflow, um, I would say you know when it comes to continuous integration pipelines. Um, you, you would, you know, you would have um, certain steps uh, that you you would normally perform on uh, on your um, development machine um, um, where you, um, you know, generate code from model, uh, from models, maybe you would uh, do some some testing um, on models. So, you know, before, you know, as a quality control check, kind of quality assurance, you, you would do some model testing. Um, the, 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 the there are lots of benefits testing earlier on models than um, uh, doing testing on the code um, and um, you know some of these benefits um, include just being able to trace the issue uh, or and, um, easier uh, because you don't have to go through um, kind of a lot of infrastructure code and figure out um, you know that whether it's actually not algorithm issue or it's a some configuration issue here, you know, doing that testing at a higher level, um, doing it on the model um, is um, is a big time saver. So you can, reduce our development time and increase efficiency by um, incorporating those tests b- before you actually go and test on the code. So, so you know, does, common term here is model in the loop testing versus software in the loop testing. Okay. Um, there we go. And so, do, does Math,
0: does MathWorks make it, you know, so we're, I'm, we're just going to focus on MathWorks tools, um, Simulink, StateFlow. Um, do they, do they provide a, a unit testing framework essentially like a, a model testing framework where it's easy to set up and run the, the model test the equivalent of unit tests in my in my opinion
1: yes yes and um, and in fact sometimes they're called you know unit models um as well um, yes uh, the uh, mathworks tools um can be used to to um, generate test harnesses for for models so you know you can take a, a unit model Wrap it around with some um, some blocks to send some input signals to the model. Look look at outputs. You can script the way you want to uh, interpret the results. Um, So um, you can you know visualize graphically um, the the inputs, the outputs, the results, uh, whatever metrics you calculate, and you can make a determination um, on you know whether the test passes or fails. Th- there are tools like Simulink Test, which is a separate toolbox, um, that uh, helps you. Manage your testing workflow. So basically, it helps you structure and organize tests and certain groups, and provide some tools to uh, generate reports from tests and, and, and things like that. And um, uh, basically, um, you know, manage your testing process easier um, uh, from from one from one place there. Um, and um, um, you can also easily switch um from model in the loop to software in the loop test um um you know without having to rewrite your test cases or your you know pass fail criteria it you know it's just flipping a switch uh, basically it's it's very easy to do Luca questions worries worries okay. there like we go all,
2: yes that all sounds too good to be true max <laughs> like does it really work that well and that smoothly um Whenever I've tried to use like graphical tools in the past, it has come back to bite me. Uh, whenever I depart from good old text-based formats that my version control system understands, that my linters understand, that my own brain understands, um, it has ended in tears. So I I'm, I'm, I, don't know. Am, am I am I, just an an, an old curmudgeon or... Or are my fears in, in, to some degree, you know, reasonable? Uh,
1: you know, there are some concerns uh, that I think, uh, you know, are justified that you're bringing. Well, you know, first of all, to to really take advantage of these tools and um, to, to the fullest extent, you know, there is some, some prep work you need to do. Uh, you... You would need to, um, you know, configure them correctly. You would, uh, especially, you know, things like code generators. They're very, um, very flexible, and uh, that's that's good and bad. Um, you, but um, uh, some some effort needs to be put into configuring the tools, configuring the way you you model, uh, you do modeling. Um, you know, tools like Simulink and Stateflow are. Um, very powerful uh almost too powerful um because you know they're made for 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 different things they're not just for software development um a lot of industries use um, simulink for all kinds of you know analysis or design tasks engineering and, and beyond engineering when you use these tools for embedded software development um or just software development in general um you know you want to restrict, uh, all that power, uh, so to speak, you, you, you want to use, you know, only subsets of, of blocks, only certain configurations that, uh, allow you to, um, to produce models that are easy to maintain that are where, um, the, the code you generate from them is, um, uh, you know v- very stable and um, uh, maybe you, you know you you meet certain uh, high integrity code standards um, so yes you can you can just kind of install the tool and and uh, <laughs> drag some blocks uh, and uh, uh, connect them together and uh, hit play and, and and there's some value in that but to make it a um, a um, um, you know, seamless experience. Um, some, some, some configuration. Some needs to be done. Um, so I think uh, I think maybe that that would address at least you know some of the some of the issues that uh, are sometimes experienced.
2: So what you're saying is that I that I can't just do model-based development on my own. I actually need an expert who's like failed a couple of times at this uh, to help me set up even even like the first baby steps of a model-based software development workflow? Is that what you're saying?
1: Um, um, I think it could be helpful, uh, yes. And it all depends on, uh, you know, yes, how, um, how much expertise you have on your team and um, what your um, goals are, what your timelines are. Um, um, you know, uh, maybe one thing that is good to keep in mind is, uh, you know, when we say models, um, uh, you know, we we mean you know people mean different things by by models. And even when we talk about the same tool and the same um, you know, let's say Simulink models, um, there are models um, of different types that are useful um, uh, in different uh, stages of the uh, product development. There are um, uh, you know, let's call them. Behavioral models, which are essentially um, uh, essentially executable specifications, they're not suited for code generation, but they are useful for other things, and they are um, very simple to you know get started with. Uh, they provide a way to to simulate um, kind of the you know the underlying logic uh, and uh, connect it maybe. Uh, you know, with uh, simulation of um, other interfacing um, pieces of software or devices, and uh, discover you know very basic issues that that are very much on the surface. Um, that are kind of so basically without um, diving deep into details of you know how how things are represented on a certain hardware platform because they are they exist in the in the absence of a hardware platform. Then you have um, models uh, that are a little more you know granular and uh, precise and um, they're often called functional uh, models and these are models that are created um, with a specific uh, hardware platform in mind but um, they're not optimized um, in um, many ways um, you know for resource consumption or for you know cpu utilization um, in and A lot of functionality may be missing but they're useful for prototyping work so you can generate code from in from from these models you can deploy these models um, you know to your prototyping uh, hardware and see how they perform in um, in the field uh, or you know how they perform on a in a test environment let's say and then there are the most uh, kind of uh, feature-rich and detailed models are implementation models and and it takes a great care to set up those you know you you typically um they're, they're typically very much coupled to the hardware um you optimize uh, the models in many different ways for optimal code generation for optimal data type uh, representation um and those are you know take the most effort to set up um, um, so You know, I would say that um, for someone who is maybe looking to get started with model-based design, maybe the, you know, the easiest way is to start with uh, those, um, you know, simpler models that uh, you can maybe run in a simulation. Um, You know, you're not going to get as much benefit, you know, um, from them until you um, configure code generation. But, but still, I, I would argue there is, there is some benefit. You can discover things early. You can iterate on your design on, on some high-level um, uh, functionality of, of the design and uh, you know, find some bugs and um, improve the quality that way before moving to uh, more detailed models.
0: Again, as I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, you know our, our careers kind of followed a very similar trajectory. I started off as a controls engineer, developing control algorithms, and I was writing control software, but I was writing them at this level of abstraction that where the the hardware was mostly abstracted away by embedded software engineers, and they would give me this framework <laughs> that I would write my control algorithms in. And first, that was in text and C plus plus, and then in automotive, that was in Simulink. So you know, the kind of the classic use case for Simulink, I think is, is algorithm like control algorithm development and, and vehicle or device simulator development. So you develop a simulator for your car or your airplane or your industrial control process. And then, you know, it's very nice. Like you have this big block representing the simulator and it has lots of inputs and lots of outputs. And then you have your control system which takes those outputs of the of the simulated model and those are the control system inputs and the outputs of the control system feed into the model inputs maybe along with some other environmental things whatever um so you would develop the simulator and then you would start developing a controller for it and like just operating with things at that level that's very useful to do that graphically at least you know and not many of our audiences, are, our audience is probably control system engineers, but we represent things with transfer functions and these block diagrams that it's very visual and doing that in Simulink is extremely convenient. Um, uh, and so, but then going the next step and actually making that code generated into an into software that runs on an embedded target, you know, we would, we would purchase these Essentially, Simulink operating systems from a, from an outside vendor that would have these big blocks like the scheduler and the CAN driver. And I did, at the time I didn't know how those worked. There was, you know, Simulink provides some tools to let you write raw C code that interfaces with the hardware, and then that shows up as a block. It's sort of like, you know, the equivalent of you write your application in Python, but for something that's really must be optimized, you write it in C, and then. You know, Python has tools to incorporate C into Python code. So it's kind of a similar level of abstraction, I think.
1: Yeah. um, It's interesting you mentioned these blocks. Um, Yeah. More and more vendors, um, you know, hardware vendors and um, like microcontroller vendors create uh, these block sets for Simulink now. um, And, you know, either. you know, uh, allow you to use them for free, basically, or um, yeah, make it very easy to use. Um, and um, it makes it very easy, you know, uh, for instance, um, you know, to do some prototyping on a, on a device that runs, um, uh, you know, let's say an NXP um, controller, a microcontroller, because you can get a, a, a block set from NXP there's a you know in fact a model-based design block set that they offer and um, drag these blocks that allow you to read some digital inputs or analog inputs um, you know there are some configuration parameters in these blocks create some outputs you know do some uh, logic uh, processing logic implementation in in the middle and um, and do uh, and create a very um, very quick uh, uh, demo for you know prototyping purposes um <clears throat> and that could be uh could be extremely useful uh, for prototyping uh mainly uh, i think uh you know when it comes to production uh production code um, there are some you know maybe some uh configuration settings uh oftentimes you <laughs> that you need to tweak that are not exposed in these blocks and it's it's hard to expose all of them because uh, you know the, the microcontroller data sheets are you know thousands of pages long and, and each page is filled with um, uh, you know description of these different settings and of course you know they're not represented that way in those blocks uh, only very um, very common uh, ways to configure peripherals um, um, are exposed there um, so it becomes uh, becomes uh, uh, more problematic to uh, you know move ahead uh, into uh, you know the production stage with the uh, target-specific code um, or target-specific model that generates code. Um, uh, but then, you know, on the other hand, you can um, uh, you can instead. Um, in my experience, you know, the the path that's taken most often is to generate portable code that only represents your um, your algorithm, um, uh, independent of um, you know the uh, target specific uh input and output blocks and then do the integration of your code with the scheduler and with the microcontroller peripheral configurations and microcontroller abstraction layer um at the c level um uh, uh, and you know that i think uh, allows you to you know uh, kind of use the best of both worlds for, for when it comes to production it takes more effort but um there, there are benefits of doing things that way.
0: So that that's good. Any thoughts on why this approach is so common in automotive and not in other industries? I'm curious what it is special about automotive and, and maybe, maybe it's really common in say aerospace or industrial controls. I don't have a whole lot of experience at those industries either.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a good question. Um, in automotive, definitely, uh, it's very common uh, in, and I think in aerospace as well. Uh, although I, I don't have much experience in aerospace, um, but um, I think it comes to uh, a few different things. Uh, one is that um, um, a lot of uh, applications in automotive they involve um, that level of complexity. You know, you have uh, complex feedback control systems. You have um, complex state machines, um, uh, and uh, it's just um, a better way to, to manage that complexity. Um, then um, another reason would be, um, you know, remember we talked about the benefit of uh, um, improving communications across different engineering dis- disciplines. Um, uh, I think um, oftentimes, you know, if you look at how the engineering departments are structured in automotive, you um, you have uh you have you know one set of engineers software engineers who who develop um, develop the software uh and then you have a different uh set of engineers you know th- they call them uh, often calibration engineers who actually tune tune the software to the vehicle it's a it's a different type of work. It's a different type of skills. You know, you, you find these calibration engineers, uh, on the test track, they would go with, um, you know, with their laptops and tweaking things as they go. And they need to, you know, to know, uh, with high degree of precision of, you know, how, um, software is implemented, what are the parameters they, they want to tune, um, you know, um, what exactly is the effect of each parameter? Um, and, um, looking at um at, at at the code level it it would be very difficult for them to figure that out and to to get that across um but looking at the uh, at the models and um uh you know the uh, the graphical representation of these uh, uh, algorithms and, and state machines um it becomes uh way easier it you know they're very comfortable doing that because you know they're typically know they have an engineering degree they know how to read state machines but but they're not software engineers um yeah i think those are kind of the the two main reasons uh that come to my mind
2: also i think there's there's actually a much simpler explanation which is the same as why uh, behavior driven development for some weird reason is relatively common in in banking in the banking sector and, and much less so elsewhere, I think it's plain old tradition. Like somebody brought this idea into the industry at large and it gained a foothold there, and that's that's really all there is to it. Uh, I I guess that it would benefit other industries as well, but they just haven't quite heard of it yet.
1: I, I think the, in, another benefit that I, I can um, speak, of, speak about uh, from, from my experiences is, um, and, and I'm sure this would translate to probably other industries, but, um, you know, you have um, in in the automotive, you know, you often have um, um, also interaction between OEMs and tier one suppliers. And um, uh, it it is rarely, or, or I shouldn't say rarely, but um, it is more difficult to um, kind of get, um, uh, you know straight source code to be shared you know across the organizational boundaries but then but instead uh, you know specifications of models can can be shared and uh, conveyed to the degree that is necessary for the other party to do things they want to do with this with that software
0: that's a that's a really good point I hadn't thought about that
2: actually let's let's talk about this some more which is uh, maybe 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 a broad question of how does model-based software development influence you know the the organizational culture how how does it change the feel of product development of software development
1: i think um it um mainly you know the, the the benefits are positive and they based on you know that improved communication between engineering functions i think it's it becomes easier to collaborate uh between engineering functions um uh, like, like we, we talked before but also uh, when the model based software development is um, um, is not the the only model it's not the only function that is using model based design so it's not only used in software development but it's also used uh, in uh, uh, system engineering let's say so if we go higher one level and you think of systems of components you uh, um, and, and sometimes, you know, that's even the term that you hear: model-based system engineering. Um, then, um, then it's easier. You know, it opens opens up opportunities for collaboration between the system engineers who look at systems of components, and they may assign functionality to to different components, and they may want to model the you know the entire systems. Um, and um, then there are definitely. Um, Synergies that uh, are created there, uh, because you know, in the in their model of you know, let's say, a motor controller, they can not just create some some model that that they you know that operates how they think the motor controller should operate, but they can actually plug in the actual model from which the code is generated uh, and um, and do so with other components and uh, do that higher level you know bigger system level simulation um and uh uh, you know uh, figure out what the issues are do some analysis uh and i I think it's extremely valuable um you know um when when the benefits of model-based design are leveraged across other functions
2: maybe maybe then let's actually turn this on its head and instead of talking about this sort of very broad um cultural implications let's talk about how do you actually join model based software development to quote unquote traditional software development that you know writes code on its on its own like how do you do that do you have to model everything and and auto generate everything i i doubt it but in practical terms and maybe also in architectural terms how how do you join those two approaches
1: yeah um that's a good question um uh i i think um they can definitely coexist um i i don't think it's either or situation where you know you you were yesterday you were 100 percent traditional uh, c code uh, developer and then you know now today we're turning uh the entire department to model based and everything's model based um, um, I, I don't think that's uh that's ever a, a wise thing to do uh and more specifically um there are i think two two um use cases for or two arguments for um uh, allowing these two um, ways to develop software to uh, coexist. exist um so one is that um, not not all code is, I think, well suited to model based development, and, and we've touched uh, upon this in uh, in our conversation earlier. Um, so, you know, what often happens is that um, the high level logic, the state machines, the control algorithms, uh, uh, complicated calculations—they they're kind of um, um, split or um, uh, they're, um, you know, the software is architected in such a way that they're put in their own layer, you know, it's called application software, application software layer. Um, And then, um, um, you know, the lower level software where you have device drivers, peripheral configurations, communication stacks, uh, some, um, you know, diagnostic protocols, um, that layer is, um, uh, you know, if we call it the the base software layer, that layer would be the one that would be natural to implement in in C. Uh, for you know, at least when it comes to production software development, um, it you know it's easier to uh, maintain it um, as a C code base. It's easier to work with it, and um, um, you know doesn't mean you can't do it in model based framework uh, or using model based me- methods but um, there's not that much benefit um, and um, and that infrastructure you know uh, typically uh, doesn't need to be exposed or understood uh, by other engineering functions as much um, although you know there could be exceptions um, so so I think that's <clears throat> that's one um, argument for using the tools to to do what you know what they're good at but not just using it to do everything but then the other argument would be you know let's say you have um some c modules that are you know let's call it legacy c code uh you you have some legacy c code modules that um, work well that um you know everyone's happy with maybe it's uh some uh uh, you know, custom filter you designed or, or something like that, uh, custom digital filter for di- digital signals. Um, you know, do you necessarily have to rewrite everything And uh, you know, model-based design tools? Um, um, probably not. Uh, you know, if, uh, if something's working well and um, it's proven in use and everyone's happy with it, uh, maybe there is no business case, uh, right now to, um, you know, rewrite, uh, that algorithm or, um, you know, turn that C code into, into a model from which you would generate C code. Um, it, it's, it's a business decision. So, um, I, you know, th- there are cases where you would not want to do that.
0: Cool. I feel like we're, we're running a little, uh, short on time now. Uh, uh, anything else you want to ask Luca before we wrap up? I
2: need to ask something very urgently which is how do I actually get started like in a in a reasonable way not in a way that needs me to throw out half my code base and replace it by Simulink which I've never used before what is an actual safe harmless way to get started and still have benefits from that
1: I think um, one good way to get started is um start using models um for um Early prototyping work. I think uh, that's probably uh, um, the easiest approach, the lowest hanging fruit, um, where you know you can use models uh, of um, you know the behavioral type models um, for doing some simulation and uh, analysis type of work, and how they um, how these models you know interact maybe with other models, other behavioral models. Um, um and then you know maybe the the next step would be to to use model based design for for prototyping uh projects uh that's where you know actually you start using code generation capabilities um and uh you can you can create very quickly create models that are de- deployable on your prototyping target hardware Um, You know, there is some off-the-shelf hardware um, uh, that that you can purchase, uh, you know, some, um, if we're talking about the actual controllers, uh, there are available uh, controller devices that are available um, freely uh, off-the-shelf that come, you know, with the block set that allow you to read some inputs, uh, um, you know, produce some outputs, uh, do some Calculation, some some um, state machine logic, whatever you have there, um, and uh, it's it's very quick uh, and um, very powerful tool. Um, and then you know, integrating it in your production software development workflow that's that's the step that's most powerful, but um, also you know, takes a bit more effort. Um, and that would be that would be the the the, the goal to get to, I think, uh, for um, you know, many, if uh, for, for many companies.
0: Cool. Well, I think that's probably a, a good place to wrap it up. Uh, Max, tell, um, maybe tell the, the listeners, uh, how they can get in touch with you and, and what you could provide.
1: You can get in touch with me, um, via my website, uh, mks.technology, um, or you can search for my name on, uh, LinkedIn, um, uh, as well. And, um, I can, provide uh, you know advice or uh, help uh, with um, tool chain design you know f- um, including but not limited to model based tool chains or hybrid tool chains that involve model based and non model model based tools um, as well as uh, you know control algorithm um, designs and um, general embedded software development Um yeah um like I said I have uh worked with uh, companies primarily in uh, automotive and industrial space and uh but you know would be happy to to help uh with any application or any work that's uh, kind of uh, close to what I, what we what we talked about and um yeah
0: Fantastic. We'll, uh, we'll have your your email and LinkedIn and, and website in the show notes for anyone who wants to get in touch with you. Um, and thanks so much for coming on the show. This has been a really great discussion. I think we, we did the topic of model-based software development justice.
1: Thank you. Uh, yeah, it's been fun. Yeah, I think so.
0: Awesome. This has been the Agile Embedded Podcast. I'm Jeff Gable. And I'm Luca and Jenny. And we will see you all next time. Thanks.